this podcast, I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Bilal Shuktai, who is an associate professor in urology at Weill Cornell Medicine here in New York. Dr. Shuktai treats the body as a cohesive system with a focus on urological care. So one of the reasons how we connected some years ago when he asked me to be one of the editors of the book Healing in Urology is because as a urologist conventionally trained, he, he is actually holistic in his thinking. He believes it is just as important to address the immediate symptoms as it is to examine the underlying causes of the urological complaint. Dr. Shaktai is an active researcher and a primary and co-investigator in numerous studies. He publishes a lot of papers. Currently, he has over 160 peer-reviewed articles that he has authored. He is a specialist in voiding this function, neurourology and female urology. On this podcast, we talk about overactive bladder in men. He breaks it down and lets us know exactly what overactive bladder is, what are the causes, and why in men, most physicians think that when they present with a urinary problem that is automatically prostate related. And we talk about that. I think that's one of the wrong things that's done in, in the urology, urology field. He also talks about the different treatments. He talks about the different alternative treatments and all sorts of treatments for overactive bladder that include things like botulinum or Botox. That's right, Botox for overactive bladder. So enjoy this podcast with Dr. Bilal Shaktai. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention to help you with your prostate health and how to live better with age. Today, we have the great pleasure of having Dr. Bilal Shuktai from Cornell, and you already know much about him from the intro. So Bilal, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Part of the intro, I spoke a little bit about the book that we co-edited, thanks to you, because I had no, <laughs> no intentions of editing a, a healing and urology book. But what I didn't say is the following. You know, I don't know, you, you've written many things. And I don't know how you feel with your writings. Sometimes I put my writings aside and I don't want to look at it after a while. It's almost like I need, I need a break from it because you spend so much time and energy and in it that you, you need a break from it. But every now and then I pick up one of the books that I'm involved in and I'm like, wow, this is actually a really good book. So it used to be after we, pu we published Healing in Urology that people used to say, hey, is there a good like complementary medicine urology. And I'm like, man, I don't know. Meanwhile, it's right there in my face. Until then, I opened up one of our books or the book that we co-edited. And I'm like, and I looked at it like fresh eyes. Wow. <laughs> this book is actually really, really good. It, 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 and so I want to start by saying that book, Healing in Urology, we got great authors who contributed with chapters, science-based, kept the scientific integrity of, of the book and really useful for, the other thing that I found that was really good is it's almost, it, it's like right in the middle where practitioners can pick it up, learn from it, but even lay people, because it's not overly complex, though there's, there are references and so. So that was a good call, and I am still, and it's been a while now since that book has been out, and I'm still very fortunate and privileged to have participated in it. So hey, this is a thank you that I might have told you five, six years ago. <laughs> Yeah, I would completely agree. That that book was um, it, it's really interesting because like I'll have patients come in and they'll have copies of the book, and you know like I'll go through some of the pages. I'm like, wow. I was like, I remember that, and I was like, that's a useful fact for me to know, and and, I, and I'll bring it up to other patients later that day. But but it's it's remarkable because like I, I think one of the focuses that we had was to keep it very evidence based, and yeah. I think. It kept us really grounded and it kept the book very um, scientifically sound, which is great. Yeah, and practical. Sometimes things are so evidence-based that it's not practical. Sometimes it, yeah. it is too practical. It's like, Where's the science? Why am I, why are you telling me to do this? And, and this particular book does both. So yeah, no, it's, it's remarkable. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, thank you once again for allowing me to be uh, part of that book. Um, Bilal, 
a little bit of background. You went into you went to medical school. You went to urology. You did a residency. Then you said, "Yeah, I like this. You know, urinary function component of it. I'm, I'm pro- I, I like to do less. I don't know kidney stones and probably not so much ED and and not so much prostate cancer. I want to get into you know uh, LUTs and urinary uh, dysfunction. Why? Why did you choose that path? Yeah. So." Um- I, I've always gravitated towards conditions that affect quality of life. And, um, you know, I found this area to have lots of innovation, but the science behind it, I, there was a lot of like uh, areas of like exploration and also like patients are tremendously motivated in this space as well. Mm. So it was an exciting area where I saw opportunity for innovation, research, and the ability to sort of um, really, you know, make the field better over time. So mm. I, I took the opportunity and, and it's been great. And it's one of the areas in urology because the urologists are known as the male gynecologists, but no, in, in particularly your area, you, you see many females. About half my practice is female. Right, right. And, and look, I, I'm glad I've learned throughout this. So I've been in urology for uh, over 20 years now, which is just remarkable. And I've learned that in most places around the world, certainly even the country, not everyone has the luxury of becoming a subspecialist within urology. They are, everyone is a, a surgeon, so it could be that they do, you know, prostatectomies, but they're also treating the urinary incontinence that comes along with that. They're not, they don't send them out to a specialist. And here we are, or at least in New York, I think, or in big cities throughout the country, throughout the country, we have the luxury of having subspecialists at NYU, while Cornell, Columbia. It's remarkable. You're right. And, and I think that um, sometimes gives us the ability to really hone in on that condition. And, and it's great. Like a patient will walk in and, I mean, it's pretty rare for someone to bring up something that I haven't come across, whether it's a novel like device off Amazon or a novel alternative therapy or a therapy that's like not even FDA approved yet. So it's great. So it allows me to really specialize in it. But I think we're also all built different. I think some of us, like I think you and I, like particularly enjoy an area of urology. I think yeah. that's why that healing and urology book was like, you know, it was, it was fun to write. I, I learned tremendous amounts of information as, as we wrote it. And it, it allows me to be like a real expert in that field. Mm-hmm. And I think some of us are built to be, you know, we like the variety. But I'm more of the, I love knowing a lot about one area. And I think that's why I like this, you know, I've I've really honed in on it. Yeah, yeah. Overactive bladder, Bilal, overactive bladder, right? So before we go into that, you know, when I learned um, or the the diseases and, and, you know, uh, pathologies uh, during school, I always went back to learn, all right, how does this particular system supposed to work and when is there the dysfunction right so how we're going to segue in a minute to overactive bladder but in 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 you know over you know bladder function 101 how does that work how how does a normal bladder work great question geo so a normal bladder is um has two functions one is storage and one is emptying so the idea is that the bladder is supposed to be able to hold lots of urine call it cup and a half, two cups. And when it's socially appropriate and, you know, the, you know, the, the person is ready, they're able to completely empty their bladder and then restart that cycle again. And that's really how normal bladder function is supposed to work. Now, obviously we're really way oversimplifying. Like we're sure. not talking about how the brain function comes in, pontine maturation center, how the spinal cord, but, but ultimately that's the underlying, that's the function that we're trying to, correct or or what's not correct during overactive bladder so here's what we're going to do we're going to go a little bit deeper not too deep there's not this is not a medical school course but we're going to go a little deeper because i think as we discuss overactive bladder a a little bit more of how it works will be uh, meaningful uh, uh, later on in this conversation so how about how you said about two cups of water of fluid, it's normal, and obviously this is a this is a rough estimate in terms of what your body, uh, what most bladders can, normal bladders can hold. In terms of uh, uh, how, how many, so when they do, uh, let's say, um, and, and a lot of the listeners 
have an idea because they've listened to the podcast what to do a, a post void a, a post void residual test right so i have an idea what should that number be before you say well, it was a problem and i know that and i found that everybody has a different response how many cc's can they yeah. hold before you say hey that that if you if if there's more than x amount and then it's a problem so, so let's um let's clarify. So, a post-void residual is the amount of leftover in the bladder after you're done urinating. Um, that's a good question. What is completely normal? Because what if you look at the literature, post-void residual hasn't really correlated with many outcomes. But we do know that as the bladder function deteriorates, post-void residuals go up, and those are patients who may be at risk for urinary retention. But Typical post-void residuals should be around 10% of capacity. When it comes to overall bladder capacity, again, what, what is normal is, let's call it cup and a half, two cups, but there can be patients who have a liter in their bladder, and they do perfectly fine for long periods of time. So unfortunately, as, we, as, as you and I both know, when it comes to the world of medicine, we've studied abnormal quite well, right? And we have lots of information <laughs> on abnormal. We don't have great information on, on normals. And even when you get into the definition of overactive bladder, it's defined by greater than you know eight voids in a 24-hour period. But wait a second, how many glasses of water are you taking in? How much is right. the appropriate amount of fluid? How hydrated are you? So there's a lot of things we don't always have great answers for. Right, right, right. So, okay. So you, you, you give us a really nice overview of the bladder, how it works. Now, what causes the feeling the of, of of having to urinate? It's when the bladder stretches. You correct me wherever I'm wrong here. The bladder starts stretching. It sets signal to the area of the of the brain. Is it brainstem? Yeah, pontine micturition center. Pontine pontine uh, micturition center. And there's a reverse motor neuron that comes back as all right. I you know I need to you know and so the signals go to goes to this. Mid center of the brain, somewhere we won't we'll get into the weeds, and so I don't butcher names here. <laughs> Tells the brain, "Hey, I need to pee." Then, whenever there's the right time, the right opportunity for you to go where it's so socially acceptable, then you go and you urinate. So the nerve function plays a role here, and I think it's um is is that correct? Is that a, a correct summary? Neurologically, yeah. So, so yeah, so so high level geo. Like, so essentially, what it is that. The bladder always wants to urinate, and it's always sending a signal up to the brain saying, you know what, I could pee, right? But the brain sends a signal back down being like, you're really not that full, right? So what will happen is that these signals should be on a very gradual level, right? Mm. So eventually you get a uh, very gradual urgency, and at one point you kind of go, oh, wow, I really have to go. Then once you have that sort of sensation, you've got an adequate amount of time to make it to the bathroom, right? And at that point, you could empty the bladder. But there's also many factors that get into it. Like there's the frontal cortex that plays a role. There's lots of things that play a role to sort of like make those signals not as reliable. And that can lead to the idea of urgency, that sudden urge to urinate or frequency urinating very frequently. Mm -hmm. What are the, so then around the bladder and in men between the bladder and the prostate, there's these receptors that also helps us urinate under normal circumstances right? Discuss that a little bit because then it's going to go into treatments and things and dysfun dysfunction and treatments as we continue to, uh, the conversation. Yeah. yeah so, so the two main receptors that are, are important for like our conversation is that there's the M3 or the muscarinic 3 receptor, and that's what makes the bladder go, right? It makes it squeeze, right? So by paralyzing the muscarinic receptor, the bladder holds more urine. Right. The other receptor is the beta-3 agonist, which allows the bladder to do a passive stretch and hold more urine. So the muscarinic 3 receptor prevents the contraction. Beta-3 uh, allows the bladder to passively relax more. So those are the two receptors that probably play a pretty big role in normal bladder function. And that's stimulated by the central nervous system. So it's not the same nervous system we were talking about before. It's a different nervous system, more of the central nervous system that dictates when any one of these receptors are stimulated. Yeah. Right. 
right? So if I have to go and I have this little this feeling that, you know what, I could hold in. I could hold it for maybe 30 minutes. Who knows? Uh, no problem until it gets to the point where the bladder really stretches a lot. It's like, okay, now I need to really go. And the signals are sent to the brain. And, and there's another signal that comes back to the bladder. And, and, and it's like, okay, I, I, whenever I'm able to go in a situation, I, I'll go. And that's more or less uh, how, how it works. So in a situation where there is overactive bladder, and, and the name sort of says it, it's overactive, but what's really happening there? Great question there. So when it comes to overactive bladder, we don't have um, a known cause per se. So it's not like we know that it's going to be related to nerves, muscle. We, we think it's multifactorial that, that play a role. We do know that it's more common in women than men. Um, and we do know it becomes more common as you get older. But we don't have an underlying cause of overactive bladder. So what's happening? So the way I explain it to patients, for example, is look, you can hold two cups of water, no problem, or you should be able to hold two cups of water, no problem. But your bladder, once it has a half a cup of water, let's just say, it's acting like if you have two cups of water. So it's very sensitive and is act- sending a lot of signals at, at a very low volume of fluid in your bladder as if you need to go now. Is that at least in part what's happening? Overstimulation yeah. or, or lack of stimulation, uh, or overstimulation of those um, miscarinic uh, uh, receptors, all of the above, sometimes one, sometimes the other. What's happening there? Yeah, so, so that's a great question, Gio. So I think that's a great explanation. I, and I give very similar explanations as well. But, you know, is it, the question is like, wait, is it that the bladder muscarinic receptors are firing too much? Is it that the brain's not suppressing that urge enough? It's, it's a good question. So we don't know exactly where in the pathway it's, it's, it's sort of getting the dysfunction. But effectively, that is what's happening, which is that you're getting signals before you're supposed to get them, or you're getting signals not on a regular level. So in other words, you're getting no signal, no signal, no signal. Then all of a sudden you get this, whoa, 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 I'm overly full. And you mm. get that sudden urge to go. So there's something up with the signal that leads to either that frequency or urgency. Mm-hmm. Bilal, earlier you said this. You said, you know, overactive bladder is more common among, among me, uh, women than men. How yeah. do we know so we that? Do see- How do we know that? Right? Yeah. Because so that is- what, because you got to nod here because you see men and often, like I had a man uh, yesterday, 82 years old. And to me, and again, I, I'm not a specialist like you, but I've been doing this long enough. You know, 82 years old with what seemed to me like overactive bladder. But of course, 82 year old man, it has to be the prostate. So he gets prostate medication, not, you know, overactive bladder medication. And I'm thinking there's no signal here. His PVR is fine. There's no signal here that it is his, his bladder. So I think there are way too many men diagnosed with prostate problems then and it's probably overactive bladder, not not a prostate problem. What are your thoughts on that? Joe, I think you're hundred percent right. <laughs> I think what ends up happening is that um, we blame the organ that we own, right? So what happens is women don't like have that. women That's don't great. have prostates, we don't we don't blame the prostate. <laughs> we blame a man, the a man organ comes in with a own. prostate, we go, Hey, it's 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 a prostate problem. It must be a prostate problem. And and I would say probably three two thirds or three quarters of the time, it probably is a prostate problem, right? But there's a fair number of men, like especially when they come in with predominantly irritative symptoms. These are the patients that when we move on to from medical therapy to some type of procedural therapy, I always get urodynamics because I want to confirm, is there truly blockage or is it truly a bladder problem? Because you're right. If you end up doing the wrong sort of therapy for what they have, they don't get any improvement. But there are a fair number of men out there with overactive bladder that have been diagnosed with enlarged prostate. And, and, and they get very little improvement. And a lot of times they think, oh, man, I'm the guy where nothing works. Right. Been on finasteride, been on tamsulosin or both for a long time. Some relief, not a whole lot, and 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 it's it's overactive. So actually, you you answered the question. You answered my next question because my next question was, how do you differentiate? And what you said was, you differentiate the only way, probably, unless you could do it just by in, in an intake. Uh, the only way is through a urodynamic, right? What's a urodynamic? Yeah. So so Jill, we'll go we'll go back one step, and I'm and I'm trying to be in good synergy with you. So I'm trying to predict your next question. Um, <laughs> but uh, I would say that 
so so the way that's actually really helpful is actually bladder diaries so bladder diaries are incredibly helpful as well so they help you figure out sort of you know the voided volumes so in other words when you see someone having like you know greater than eight voided volumes, each one being like less than 150, you're like, whoa, 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 this is very concerning for overactive bladder. You know, you look at that Euroflow, if someone's got a Q max, um, so in other words, their flow rate is faster than 15 cc's per second, that's also very telling for overactive bladder. But the gold standard or the best way to tell is going to be Eurodynamics, which is a test that involves placing a catheter inside the penis, a catheter inside the rectum, you fill up the bladder, you measure pressures of the bladder, and it helps you determine if there's obstruction or no obstruction. But I would say that the, the, the real key here is, that, and, and I think you're awesome at it because I've seen a lot of your patients as well, is like you do a good history and physical. When you see that patient coming in with urgency, frequency, good flow, never, compare, never uh, complains about weak stream, that really helps tell you what, what, what their underlying diagnosis is. That's pretty much what I go by. And, and a Euroflow, which um, actually there are apps there for uh, that you alluded me to, uh, you alerted me to uh, uh, some time ago. Um, but that's yeah, that that's pretty much uh, what I what I've seen. So it's 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 still like wow, why why are, you know? And I'm always you know, I, I you know I am not the practitioner who's who who um, complains or. Uh, or um, criticizes any other practitioner. I'm I'm really thinking like, wow, what am I missing? Because to me, this 82 year old that's not having a weak stream and not complaining of that it sounds like overactive bladder. So what am I missing? Why is, is he on finasteride? Which is, uh, I was talking to Mohit Kara from mm -hmm. Baylor, and he's like, yeah, I really don't like you know uh, five alpha reductase inhibitors of patients in terms of what it does hormonally. So I don't want my patients to be on these drugs unnecessarily specifically. So it, it's no, good I, to I would, I would agree with you. Yeah, I would agree with you 100%. I mean, what, what ends up happening is that a lot of times when you, um, you know, when you listen to the when you listen to the patient, they can give you a lot of hints of sort of what's happening. And, and I think what, what you're doing, and especially these a lot of these medications, they are designed for the patient beyond them for the rest of their lives. So when you talk about finasteride, I mean, you're right, hormonal drug, and there's a lot of, you know, data talking about concerns with long-term exposure to those meds. Yep. All right. So let's talk, and I am truly integrative, as you know. There are more, I find that some medical, heart, 100% medical doctors are way more natural than I, even I am, and they don't do anything, you know, medical. And I'm like, no, some of these things work, you know. In the right person, I, in the right person, Tamsulosin is a fabulous drug, low side effect profile, and it works. It's like my God, this works so well. And so, sure, my bias, first line therapy. Let's look at natural lifestyle. For example, metabolic syndrome and OAB tightly a lot of correlation there. A lot of research saying you know people with over metabolic syndrome, which is a cluster of symptoms, right? where it's you know high LDL, bad cholesterol, big waste, people that just don't take care of themselves, a big waistline, they typically have more OAB. Constipation, you know, your colleague, our colleague, but really your colleague more than mine, Steve Kaplan and colleagues wrote a decent paper not that long ago uh, on the, um, the association between the bowel and bladder connection, right? So things like constipation can induce overactive bladder or urinary frequency, for example. Um, and there's a connection, a neural connection, connection there. So there's a lot of these components. So natural to me is, and lifestyle is it's, but some of these drugs work well, right? And some of them have low side effect profile. So you mentioned the two receptors is the first, well, the first line of therapy is what <laughs> any person with overactive bladder. Let me it's ask, what you said. So, so, yeah. so the first thing is you ask about all those questions. You ask about what your diet intake is, you know, uh, intake of bladder irritants. You talk about reducing irritants. You can also include like re reducing constipation, reducing waist circumference. So these are all things that you can start off with. Once they fail dietary and behavioral management, then you can go on to the use of medication. Or they don't fail, but compliance is difficult. And I don't shame anyone when compliance is difficult. They're, you know, <laughs> exercise, eat right, sleep well, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, life is life. And some people have very complicated lives. Gio, you're 100% right. I, and, and, and that's, so, so a lot of times 
what I try to what I try to do is visit number one, right? Let's rule out all the big bad things. Let's rule out things like bladder cancer. Let's rule out infection. Let's rule out all that stuff. Then I take a step back and I go, look, there's a multitude of ways that we can address this. We'll I'll give you a list of things that you can do. And also keep in mind when it comes to bladder irritants, not all bladder irritants are the same for everybody. Some people will go, look, I get terrible urgency frequency with dark roast coffee, but light roast, not a problem. So hmm. I'm like, great. So this is a small fix that you can do without getting rid of coffee altogether. So there's things we work on like that. Some pa- some patients are very inclined towards like, look, you know, being realistic, I'm not going to be able to change my diet. So let's talk about moving on to medication or adjuncting with medication or sometimes the use of alternative medicines. Mm-hmm. We're going to reverse engineer. We're going to do a little like, okay, what are the meds? And here's why. So the reason why I asked you to mention those receptors is because a lot of those current drugs are antagonists to those receptors. So we have anticholinergic drugs or anti-muscarinic mm-hmm. drugs. So they block the, uh, the muscarinic receptor. And then we have mm-hmm. beta agonist drugs as well. So correct in last year at last year's AUA, and I don't think it was new news, but it was news that at least, you know, you always come out of the AUA. So the AUA is the American Urological Association meeting and everyone, most people go and you try to come away after a while with one or two takeaways that you can use clinically because, you know, sometimes you're giving those talks. So one of the things that I came away with there is like, wow, these anticholinergic drugs and the association, the association with cognitive decline. And then I have a few systemic reuse. Can you talk on that? Because, right, who are the ones you know taking these drugs? T- typically, elderly people, and and so then it that's not a great trade off, if you ask me. Yeah. So what we're seeing a lot of is that when you look at anticholinergic drugs, these drugs can you know, cross the blood-brain barrier. And when we talk about the muscarinic 3 receptor, there's other muscarinic receptors that occur in, in the brain, in the mouth, in the gut, in the in the stomach. So you can end up with other side effects. And the problem is when they cross the blood-brain barrier, that can lead to, uh, you know, cognitive decline. And these drugs have been very much linked to it. And you're right. Unfortunately, as we get older, our cognition gets a little bit more delicate, you add on these drugs, and now you're adversely affecting cognition even more. So so these drugs have gotten under a lot of scrutiny. Now, a lot of the data that we're seeing is for the nonspecific drugs that are a little bit more um, easier to get, but they're also the ones that are insurance tends to approve. The more specific drugs that are muscarinic uh, uh, antagonists, uh, anti-muscarinics, those drugs sometimes are harder to get approved through insurance. And beta-3, obviously, are newer drugs that don't have that side effect at all, but they sometimes can be very challenging to get approved by insurance. Interesting. We're going to go into beta-3 drugs in a second. The other thing with, the other thing with anticholinergics is a lot of them seem to cause constipation. And we already said, wait a minute, is there, there is a, an association, a correlation between constipation and overactive bladder, but we're causing at least part of the problem. So it's almost like the uh, uh, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Like, ah, those are not my favorite drugs for overactive bladder at this point. <laughs> They're not my favorite if I have to choose one. Uh, so are we on the same page a little bit here, more or less? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you talk about uh, anti-muscarinics, you're right. And, and, and not only um, what happens, like, so you've got this overactive bladder complex, right? So what's a natural reaction for patients to do? drink less water. What does drinking less water do? Cause more constipation. What does causing constipation do? Cause more urgency frequency. So a lot of these things do exacerbate. Now you add on the anticholinergics where now you got dry mouth. So now you're drinking more water for the dry mouth. It's causing constipation. So, so you have to be very careful. And it's very important, I think, to educate the patient on the side effects and, and sort of mitigation strategies. So a lot of times I'll tell patients, like, look, we'll start an anticholinergic, but don't start drinking tons of water. I want you to think about a sugar-free candy. Or you're going to have constipation. You can drink some extra water, but let's try to get you to a good stool softener to help reduce the you know reduce constipation risks. So you, you, you have to educate the patient about these side effects. Right. With the beta-3 agonists, right? They're agonists, not antagonists? Correct. So. Yeah. They're beta-3 agonists, so they actually stimulate the receptor. 
Before we continue, let's give a little love to today's sponsor. You know, I always say no man wakes up in the morning and says, wow, I can't wait to get that prostate biopsy today, right? No man does. And the PSA test we know is not the greatest screening tool for prostate cancer. Well, now we have the ExoDX prostate test, which is the only risk assessment tool available as an at-home collection kit so patients can provide a specimen in the comfort and convenience of their home. The ExoDX prostate test has been included in the NCCN guidelines since 2019 for early detection of prostate cancer, and it's a simple, no digital rectal prostate exam required urine-based test for men over 40, or if there's a PSA roughly in that gray zone between 2 and 10 nanograms per milliliter to determine if you indeed need a prostate biopsy. So ask your urologist about the ExoDX prostate test. And the um, I think we could mention uh, at least the trade, the the if not the trade name, the generic name, if you want. I think I know the trade. They're doing such a good job marketing at our office. I only know the trade name. Merbetric is is the one of the drugs. Yeah, Merbetric or Merbagron. It's a generic Merbagron, name. Merbagron. Yeah. Are there? I don't know of another. Are there? Uh, there's other? a Verabagron. Yeah, there's Verabagron right. as well. Okay. Good. Good. I don't find, so just like with the situation with prostate uh, urinary issues, where I'm saying alpha blockers are fine, right? Low, you know, a lot of benefit, low risk. I've been saying the same thing with beta-3 agonists. Am I correct? I don't, you know, because I don't know that group of drugs too well. Like I know uh, uh, 5-alpha blockers. Yeah, so when you look at the side effects profile of beta-3 agonists, so Mirabegron was the original one that came out probably around like 2010 to 2012. And the biggest side effect with that one is it can affect blood pressure. Uh, in, in practice, I find that it doesn't, it's not a huge change in blood pressure, usually a few points. But patients who are have more blood pressure issues or labile blood pressure, you want to definitely warn them about it and recheck blood pressure. Now, when you talk about Verabegron, that's a, that's a drug that's come out probably the last uh, couple of years, and it's a little bit more specific and doesn't have the blood pressure issue. It's a much better tolerated. And the other thing about these medications, you know, very low risk of constipation, no dry mouth, and Correct. very little to no risk of dementia. So, you know, they've, they've really brought up or stepped up the safety profile for overactive bladder medication. How efficacious? I mean, clinically you see way more of these patients than I do. So clinically, I'm like, wow, this is pretty good. And again, if it if it works, if we've tried the alternative or we tried the herbs that didn't work or the lifestyle and either it doesn't work or you, it's hard to maintain, seems like a decent drug. How efficacious are these beta-3 agonists? Yeah, I would, I would say that, um, you know, like in, in my experience, they work uh, you know, fairly well. Probably like the response rate, 70% of patients tell me they have at least a 50% improvement in symptoms. And a lot of patients are, are, are pretty happy and they stay on them. But with just like every drug, I mean, anticholinergics have a tremendous fallout where 70% of patients probably don't continue the drug after about a year. Um, these drugs seem to have a better safety profile and better efficacy profile where probably the dropout rate is probably closer to 40 to 50%. But again, it seems like from a safety profile standpoint, a lot better. Efficacy standpoint, it's... Uh, I would say in practice, I find them to be uh, about the same as anticholinergics, sometimes a little bit not as efficacious, but depends on the patient, depends on the setting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Before we go into um, alternatives and CAM and complementary medicine, we have to talk about botulinum. So I saw a systemic review from 2022. At, they looked at a group of men. And botulinum is Botox, and for the audience, it's the same Botox that some people use for their wrinkles. A, how does it work? And B, how efficacious is it? It didn't seem to be so helpful from that perspective, from this systemic re- review from 2022. So what what is your experience with uh, botulinum and overactive bladder? Well, well first, Geo, if we're going to use a generic name, it's actually Ona Botulinum Toxin A. That's right. That's right. Thank we'll call you. it Botox. Yeah, we'll we call, call it Botox, Botox. because, um, yeah, yeah. But um, it, so, so I, I, 
Yeah, so there's there's two two things we have to look at for Botox. So there's Botox for overactive bladder, and there's Botox for enlarged prostate. So there was a multi-center, very large study done looking at Botox for enlarged prostate and injecting Botox directly into the prostate. That's where it wasn't that helpful, and it was about the same as placebo. Now, when you look at Botox for over, by the way, to me that means to to me that sorry to interrupt. To me, to me that means uh, so when there's a, a a drug or experimental tool material that's used compared to placebo, and they both come up the same. The way I look at it is, wow, the power of placebo is serious and significant. That's the way I look at it versus that the drug didn't work. But anyway, that's uh, that's just an aside. Go ahead. Continue. I'm sorry. Gio, you do bring up a good point. Actually, when you look at a lot of the clinical studies, and I, and I know you're, you're very familiar with a lot of them, it, it's it's remarkable the placebo effect and about how long it could last. And sometimes you can see this placebo <laughs> effect last for like up to three months, which tells you how multifactorial these conditions are and, and how mm-hmm. important it is to, to get rigorous testing. But you are right. When you see a drug and the placebo effect, um, and, and I will tell you, it, it's kind of funny because I, I do a fair number of clinical trials. I've had patients in the placebo arm of trials, and they'll come back to me and go, can I get more placebo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, like, it, it, it's, uh, it, you yeah. know, the drug, the drug is dismissed. Uh, in that scenario, and I'm saying, no, no, it's not saying the drug didn't work. It's just saying that the placebo effect is powerful. So anyway, but that's yes. that's just so you were saying about the study in men that where they uh, injected uh, Botox right to the prostate. Correct. And and that's where it had very low efficacy. Now, we've done a bunch of studies looking at Botox post like TERP or post laser and seeing its effect um, for an, on urgency, frequency, overactive bladder symptoms. And there it has a very good effect. In addition to men who have overactive bladder and women who have overactive bladder, it's got probably like a 75 or 80 percent effect. Uh, that's not, that's really, not insignificant. Really well. Yeah. Okay, so maybe that's what I saw actually, yeah, because it was uh, um, there was it was only men in this trial. And so, how does it work? So, you're literally in- injecting Botox right to the bladder. Yeah, so you're reducing bladder wrinkles. No, I'm totally kidding. Um, so, so what you're what you're what you're actually doing? Can you get is a two? The, you, can you get Botox. a two for one? I'm two for one. Like, hey, while you're there, you know, okay, uh, what I'm wait. under anesthesia. Good. Yeah, so, so so it's funny. I think I think a lot of patients joke about that, but unfortunately, the dosing is, is is very different. But what you're essentially doing is a Botox actually goes and binds to the anticholinergic synapse. I mean, the the synapse, and basically prevents the excretion of acetylcholine, therefore paralyzing the synapse. Over time, there'll be new receptors that get built. But essentially, it takes around oh seven, uh, probably like ten to fourteen days for that receptor to get to completely dis like essentially non-functional and then the effect can last anywhere between i would say like three months to nine months but the average being around six months so the thing about botox is you do have to come back and get retreated about every six months it's a process how, how long is the procedure is it painful uncomfortable what's under anesthesia local anesthesia how does it work so it depends on the patient obviously probably the great majority of patients that I do are done under local anesthetic right in the office. So we uh, put numbing medicine inside the bladder, drain the bladder, inject the Botox, takes us around like two, probably like three, four minutes, and then we're done. There's some patients who are a, a bit more sensitive, and then in those patients, we do it under some sedation in the OR. You know, so for the audience, so what we're trying to do here, what Dr. Shaktai is trying to do here is so that the bladder does not contract so often, so frequently. So Bilal, the question that I have is retention. Can you overtreat? Can it cause retention because now the bladder is not contracting at all? Absolutely. So, so these are the patients that I, I do find some form of urodynamics very helpful, whether a urocuff or a formal urodynamics to figure out their bladder contractility, because there is a uh, you know a low risk of retention that can occur with these uh, with these patients. So, I would say that you know, you do want to be aware of it, but the rates are fairly low. And I would say it's fairly predictable who's going to go into retention. Rates are probably around like four or 5% across the board. And what are the, what are other common side effects from the treatment? Rarely urinary tract infection. So that's the two most common side effects is urinary tract infection occurs probably less than 10% of the time. Urinary retention, which occurs probably four to 6% of the time. Excellent. Any other treatments that we should talk about, or if there are too many, we can 
move on to alternative treatments. Well, well, I, I, I think I think we should talk about the other third line therapies. And there's two main varieties. There's peripheral tibial nerve stimulation, which is a once a week therapy, yeah. a small needle behind the ankle. Um, you sit in the office for about 30 minutes and it sends a calming electrical signal up to the bladder. Its efficacy is probably around like, you know, probably 60 to 70%. Um, so I tell patients, you know, be patient, but it's very low risk. So that's one therapy. The other one is sacral nerve modulation, where it's, uh, there's two manufacturers. There's Axonics, Medtronics. There's rechargeable, non-rechargeable. But essentially, this goes with a lead that's implanted into the S3 foramen. And then ultimately, that sends a calming electrical signal to the bladder. And it's got very good efficacy as well, probably 70, 70 to 80% as well. And ultimately, it's, it's definitely worth the conversation with your urologist about the uh, role of these medicines, uh, role so of these a, therapies uh, for overactive bladder. So we're going to briefly repeat some of that because actually I, that's a great point. So the first one is posterior tibial nerve stimulation. So, so Bilal, you'll laugh. You know, as you know, I'm, a, an ac I'm an acupuncturist as well. And yeah. when that treatment came out, I sent a note to uh, a reply to all our faculty. I said, hey, I could do this. This is very, this is in my mind, acupuncture with electric stim, and I could do this. And it wasn't looked that favorably because, so I got some pushback. I was like, okay, I'm about to get fired. And I was just new at NYU at the time. Okay, I'm going to get fired now. Great. But how is it, right? Other than they've done rigorous studies on, on this, um, where in acupuncture hasn't, you know, because they haven't patented, they couldn't patent anything on technology or anything. How is it different? You know, you have some idea of what acupuncture is. So there's two points where you can stick needles. You can you can definitely attach electrostim, which we've been doing for hundreds of years or in acupuncture. How is that different? Yeah, so, so when it comes to percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation, in theory, it's this calming electrical signal at you know, given at a given frequency that's supposed mm -hmm. to lead to uh, reduced urgency and reduced frequency. And Gio, you know the acupuncture sites a lot better than I do. And, <laughs> and, yeah. and I agree, that is one of the acupuncture sites for overactive bladder. So in some ways, there is some overlap. And I, and I think depending on the signals that you're using during acupuncture, is probably right. pretty similar to PTNS. In addition to that, I mean, we've actually done a systematic review on acupuncture and overactive bladder, and we found that data is actually quite compelling for overactive bladder. Uh, thank you. Uh, I was also involved in that paper with you, actually. I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember, <laughs> Gio. And, and, I Listen, didn't, and I didn't want to say something like, Gio, that paper we wrote, and you're like, I wasn't on it. So I was like, no, you know I what? would be like, I mean, just I'll, be no, I, would act, I would do exactly the opposite. That's right, Bilal, the paper we wrote. <laughs> <laughs> That's I remember. Of course I remember. <laughs> a paper just came out, another systemic review that we had nothing to do with, literally just came out a few weeks ago showing efficacy with uh, acupuncture and overactive bladder as well. They're not using the same points here. It's just ac uh, other points that are used in acupuncture, but another paper came out uh, there again. So it, it seems to be helpful. Of course, uh, some of our colleagues, once I posted on Twitter, I mean, they have good questions and concerns is like, well, how is sham acupuncture really sham acupuncture? What is sham? Is that a real placebo? And so forth. So you can, I love science and our scientific community, but one of the things we've learned from science or scientists is that we could, we could get really deep into the weeds. And at the end of the day, we're looking for clinical outcomes. How can we get clinical outcomes with some, with some good, you know, good, good science. But, but, but I think, Gio, I think you're, 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 you're getting into a really good point, which is that Every study that's done has limitations, and that's just the nature of the game. And as a result, you're right. Like in some ways, like I think the data for acupuncture looks very compelling. But one of the limitations of the data, it's hard to do a placebo acupuncture. Yeah, yeah, no question about that. No question about that. The other, the second treatment that I'm drawing a blank on that you mentioned after uh, posterior tibial nerve stimulation is what was it again? I'm sorry, sacral nerve modulation. That's right. Is that that's a surgical procedure, isn't it? It is. So it's typically a two-step procedure. We do a test phase with a temporary lead to the S3 foramen, and then you get a permanent implant that gets uh, uh, placed in the upper buttocks, and that implant sends a calming electrical electrical signal to the bladder. And I, I also think that we should mention the fact that this is it associated with an app or something? Do you control it with an app? I, I, I don't there, know if it's a silly a, question. 
actually? No, no. Great question. There are controllers for both and you, and you would have a controller, but ultimately once you set the signal, you don't make many changes in the setting. I gotcha. Okay. And um, Gio, one thing, uh, oh, mm -hmm. sorry. I, I didn't want, I just want to finish up one last thought, which is that, you know, there is a lot of new innovation in the nerve modulation space. So there's new implants for the, t uh, you know, we're posterior to the tibia and sacral nerve implants. Um, so this, uh, when it comes to therapies for overactive bladder, there's a lot of new stuff in the pipeline. Oh, good, good. I'm going to become uh, abreast of it, I'm sure, next uh, in May when uh, we're uh, at our, our next meeting. So how often do you need to go back in and either replace that tool or does it get infected? Or w what are some of the complications that may occur once yeah, it's so I would inserted? Say, I would say infection rates are probably, probably like 1%. Uh, when it comes to revising or replacing the device, you know, we did a study, it got published in uh, JAMA Surgery, demonstrating that the old version of the device had retreatment rates that are pretty high, around like 20, 25% in one year. But mm. again, those devices were not MRI compatible. The new devices are MRI compatible. So I do think that we're going to see a lot lower revision rate going forward. And that's been my clinical experience as well. Excellent. Excellent. Yep. Right. Some of the staff here at NYU also are do a lot of that, but I just never dug deep into it at all. Is it mostly, uh, my? do they do this type of therapy mostly to women versus men? And if so, why? Again, it's more prevalent in, in women. So we see it more commonly in women, but I would say that in my practice, um, there's a fair number of men who would do this therapy for, because we see a lot more, we're diagnosing a lot more overactive bladder in men. And as we spoke about earlier, I think that real numbers are probably 50-50, men, women. If we blame the organ we have, <laughs> we, blame the, we blame the organ we have. It's like when Alter in doubt, blame the prostate. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Urinary prostate. You have one, right? Oh, you don't have one. so. Well, now it's a bladder. If you don't have one, it's a bladder. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Alternative therapies. Now, I, that I could talk a lot, of, but I, I'm always interested in your perspective, right? Because it's not like you're trained. Like, I'm, I was trained in natural medicine, right? And I and then I went into urology. You did the reverse. You were trained in urology, and then you, you had some interest in alternative therapies. Personal question first. And I know we spoke a little bit about it earlier. I'm always interested because you come, I, I believe you come from Indian descent, and so I often find that those that come from Indian descent have curiosity about herb, herbs and herbal therapies and things because they're grandma or Ayurveda or things like that. Was there, is there a connection there with you at all or not, not that much? Yes. Yeah, so, so my family's uh, Pakistani, but um, Pakistani? For, for me, yeah. So for me, the interest same, really came from the Same in terms of history and use of herb, er, herbal very, very, medicines. Very yeah. similar. But um, it, it wasn't really more familial, but it was more like I started practice and I would see patients come in with bags full of supplements and, you know, it, being trained in, um, obviously in like, you know, Western medicine, I was, I was kind of like, you know what, these don't do anything. Like, how dare you? Like, why are you using these? And then, and, right. you know, then I also thought this is getting irresponsible of me. I feel like I should know more about this and <laughs> I should also know, like, I should be able to guide you a bit. Like where's data, where there, where's there no data? What, like, where is there animal data? Where is there some data to support its use or not its use? So I started changing my language a bit, saying that, look, we have supplements, right? And no one regulates. It's, it's the Wild West when it comes to regulation. But that doesn't mean that some of these supplements don't work. And, you know, there have been companies along the way that have also been very interested and very vested in science to back what they do. And I think that's what really got me interested because then we had – clinical data to support the use of some of these supplements for a variety of conditions. Mm -hmm. What are your top five for OAB in terms of anything? I would say mostly herbal, but in terms of any complementary alternative treatment that you would say, yeah, I tell, when my patient says I'm taking X, I say, sure, keep taking it or you recommend it yourself. Yeah. So, so the one, the one that we've actually done a clinical study with, we've actually done one with a, a freeze dried cranberry and uh, we actually had, very good outcomes. It was a study of, um, I, I want to say 77 women that were randomized to placebo versus this cranberry supplement. And they actually had a pretty uh, remarkable improvement in their urgency and frequency episodes. Granted, we only focused on 
uh, patients who did not have incontinence, but I was really surprised by how well they did. So that's a supplement that I typically would recommend because we've got some scientific backing behind it. I do tell them limitations, like it wasn't a multi-center trial. It was only 77 women. When it comes to other overactive Did they have no urinary tract infections? Because I find that to be interesting. So typically, historically, cranberry products have been used in people who have a history of urinary tract infections because there seems to be benefits there in terms of the bacteria attaching to components of the cranberry so that you can get it out of your system. What's the mechanism of action in, uh, for cranberry, for this particular type of cranberry product uh, in overactive that, bladder? That is a excellent question. So one of the things in the study we did try, we, we, we didn't have a clear cut mechanism of action. And that's actually further studies that we're, we're trying to, you know, trying to get funding for and trying to do, because we want to try to figure out if there is, you know, what, what could be playing a role? Does it have to do with something like microbiome? Does it have something to do with uh, affecting the urothelium itself, uh, the GAG layer? So don't know at the moment. Great. Complementary medicine number two, what would that be? Yeah, so I've seen like there are times where patients will come in with sometimes like pumpkin seed extract. Um, so I will tell them like there is some limited data on it. There are some extracts that I can't pronounce very well, like Jinko Gobal. I think you should correct me on that one. So that one's got some uh some some data to support its use as well. So those are the those are the three that I'll point patients towards and say that right. look if you're going to try something these are the three that I have you think about. But I also warn them that I don't have there's not a very good reliable manufacturer that I would say hey this is the manufacturer right. to, to go for. I, I think for for cranberry we now have I think we have some that seem very promising, uh, but we also need obviously more clinical data to support its use. By the way, I also don't. That's a, that's a Japanese herb herb uh, that I uh, Jinko Goban, and and I also don't pronounce it uh, overly well either. So thank but God, yeah. at least I'm not the only one. <laughs> no, no, yeah, exactly. I, I've struggled a little bit with that one as well. Uh, I think I struggle with a lot of <laughs> some of these pronunciations. We had to learn the Latin and herbal herbal medicine, and it was like, oh man. In general, any other uh, therapy? It could be herbal. It doesn't have to be herbal. Um, any other practice, uh, yoga, any, anything that you can say, yeah, th- this, there's an association here, correlation, even as, if it's correlation, that's uh, positive. Yeah. So, so Ju, I think you're going to get into like the other stuff that we're really talking about is that we know there's multiple factors affecting overactive bladder. And, and sorry, the, the lights go out in my office at seven o'clock. They'll turn this back is on a real a cool look. I would have asked you to have this done, uh, <laughs> to have this look. <laughs> so there's a lit. So there's uh, people listening on the podcast. Eventually, those come out on YouTube. So Dr. Shuktai's office just went dark, and he, he there was a, almost like a red light on on him, and and that just uh, it was a sudden change. It was cool. <laughs> um, yeah, but but again, it gets back to how these conditions can be multifactorial. It could be pelvic floor dysfunction. There could be obviously nerve issues, muscle issues. So the the role of you know pelvic floor exercise, the role of uh, yoga, the role of stretching. The, uh, there's lots of things that can have net benefits in reducing urgency, frequency, and and the symptoms that go with it. Our friend Amy Stein, she's a physical therapist, and she's a pelvic floor spe- uh, physical uh, expert and and therapist, and so her practice specializes in that. Anything that she can do that you know of, uh, not details, but in terms of in other words, a patient with overactive bladder, but man, there's no evidence that you can tell this pelvic dysfunction. Uh, it's just overactive bladder. Is there that, benefit? Um, no, I, I think there is. I mean, I've I've seen, I've had lots of patients that have gone and seen her and, and her group, and they've had, you know, very good improvement. You know, what I tell patients is that, you know, in some places we don't have tremendous data. And I think when it comes to plain, like overactive bladder, right? There's definitely data to support the use of pelvic floor physical therapy. I think that it is it is helpful. Um, I think those who have underlying pelvic floor dysfunction have tremendous benefit. But it's hard to say what came first, right? Did you get overactive bladder? Did your muscles become tight because you've had to hold it for so long? So I think there's definitely a net benefit for for, for that therapy. So uh, my last question is the following. So we know there's likely a 50-50 chance male-female that uh, is overactive bladder uh, for females and, and males. Is there any difference between the way you treat a, all things being equal, equal, the way you treat men versus women uh, with overactive bladder, or you would 
recommend similar things to each gender depending on what? Yeah, so, so it is. So first line therapy is the same. You're still going to recommend, you know, reducing waist circumference, pelvic floor exercises, the, the use of reducing bladder irritant. So that's going to be the same. In, in men, you want to have that discussion between is it possibly enlarged prostate versus overactive bladder? And and with some men, you know, if we have a uh, if I have a good historian and we talk about the role of weak flow, whatever it might be, I mean, we'll go and follow a very similar pathway. I, usually, when it comes to invasive therapies, I typically do urodynamics prior to any invasive therapy. So it's a pretty similar pathway for both genders. Great, Bilal. Any last thoughts? Overactive bladder. You know, guys, when at, at, what's the most so. I try to teach patients to when they are seeing a urologist that look, let me make it ask good questions so that it's most efficient and you get the answers you're looking for and you you know uh, respect their time, they respect yours and da da da. Anything that you would suggest to patients to say, hey, when you see a urologist for overactive bladder for anything, this, these are the things like just be what is there any anything that uh, yeah, so, so that Gio, makes I it think, easier in your practice? One thing, so one thing I would actually go back about is that. What's really hard about overactive bladder is that uh, some of the conditions that we treat don't have a lot of associated conditions that go with it. But we know that overactive bladder is associated with depression, anxiety, social isolation. And there have been studies that actually show that some people rate that state of urge urinary incontinence as a state worse than death. So, mm. so the point is, in a lot of ways, you got to tell your doctor. You got to tell somebody. Like, start the conversation because there are a lot of good therapies out there. And in a lot of ways, like just by starting that conversation, hopefully we can reduce the impact on quality of life. And, you know, because ultimately what ends up happening is that, remember, overactive bladder is unpredictable, right? So what, what do you start doing? You want to bring predictability back. So what do you do? You stay home. You go, I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm not going to go for a walk. I'm not going to go outside, right? So you start reducing activity. What does that do? Exacerbate the condition. So in a lot of ways, like there's a lot of silent sufferers with this condition. And I think it's important that, we bring that up to the listeners that if you have this condition or know someone with this condition, you know, bring it up to your bring it up to your primary care doctor. Start the conversation. That's a great point. Look at it holistically, which I think is you know all the systems uh, are interrelated. Any idea what comes first, depression or overactive bladder first, and then it, any idea? It's like the chicken and the egg argument. Hard yeah, to say. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but we know that they're very highly correlated and addressing one definitely helps the other as well. But it's important to know that they're very highly correlated. Man, wonderful. Listen, any final thoughts? We're, we're coming close to the end. This has been great. I think this is a, a wonderful, I wouldn't call it a master class because a master class would be more, more like eight hours. But for one hour almost, this was very good. Any final thoughts, Bilal? No, no, this is a, a great conversation. Really enjoyed this. And thank you for having me, Gio. Uh, thank you. Um, where can uh, people find you? In terms of for my, my practice is on yeah online. Um, though you can check out. I mean, my profiles on the Wild Cornell uh, website, and mm -hmm. I, I practice on the Upper East Side. Upper East Side, New York City. Hey, Bilal, thanks so much, and thanks for your time. Have a great evening, and I'll see you soon. Thanks so much, brother. Thank you. Bye bye. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG One. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time, and it has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible, but you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more 
by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in a world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Associated with.